Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Literacy Podcast. Mm -hmm. Melissa and Lori love literacy. We are super excited to be back with one of our favorite guests of all time, David Lieben. Thank you for coming back, David. (laughs) (laughs) And David, for anyone that might not know who you are, I know everyone does already, but just in case they don't, can you just give a little introduction of yourself before we jump in? Certainly. Um, I started, I, I, first of all, I'm really old. Um, and therefore, you know, anything that, anything that will introduce the entire range of my experience would take an hour and a half or so. Um, (laughs) but I basically was a classroom teacher for well over 20 years. Um, I ran a school, um, a K to eight school in Harlem, a public school that, um, I started with my wife, Meredith, and uh, as a result of the success in that in that school, I was asked by uh, David Coleman and, and Sue Pimentel to um, if I could synthesize the research for the writing of the Common Core Standards. Since what I what we did at our school was based on research, um, and if I could synthesize that research for the standards, which is pretty much Appendix A. Um, but also, also other 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 pieces that were were emphasized. I'm not a writer of the standards, but I did that was that was my job. And since then, I've been working um, with student achievement partners. Although now I'm an independent consultant, but for much of the last eleven or twelve years, I worked with student achievement partners. Um, my role was with uh, varied. I did work with districts, work with states. And a lot of work with publishers. Um, I had, I definitely contributed to all of the new knowledge-based curriculums that have come out since the standards. I was involved with all, with every single one of those, with the possible exception of bookworms, um, which is wonderful and I love, but I was not involved in, in that in that program. So that's that's a, a brief introduction to myself. And I don't, oh, and I, well, I said I ran a school, so I was a principal. So I've been a principal and a teacher. I've done a lot of, well, I said I'm freaking old. Um, <laughs> I've done a lot of, I taught history in community college, um, which was really, really fun. And I've, in one way or another, taught every grade from kindergarten to graduate school. Not full-time kindergarten, because I don't have <laughs> that kind of, that, that, that's the hardest. <laughs> <laughs> Not just patience, but stamina. I mean, in the, in the beginning of our school, it was small. And uh, I to cover other teachers, to give teachers their prep period, I, I taught math to the kindergarten. I taught two kindergarten periods, back-to-back math. And then I took oh the gosh. whole kindergarten to lunch. Uh, no, I had, a, I had a, a para to help me with lunch. But after two periods with kindergarten and then lunch duty with kindergarten, I got back to my office and I thought I was going to become an alcoholic. Um, <laughs> there is there is absolutely nothing more difficult than teaching kindergarten. Um, and not a thing. I mean, in pre-K, there's laws. You have to have another adult in the room. There's no such law for that for kindergarten. 
Um, I thought maybe. you were going to say nap time, like pre-K had nap time. I was like, I'm on board for nap time, but you're right. I don't know that, the, that nap time is a law, but the other person is. <laughs> yeah, the other person is a law. And lots of kindergartens have nap time, but that doesn't mean lots of kindergartners nap. And then those right. who resist it the most tend to make nap time somewhat less relaxing than its name implies as far as the teacher is concerned. That is true. Oh well, my gosh. Well, good that news quite is an that uh, today we will not be talking about kindergarten. <laughs> or nap yeah. time. But maybe we could talk about that another time. Because <laughs> we actually wanted to talk to you about older students, um, which is exciting. We I know I actually worked with you, David, um, in Baltimore on this exact topic uh, last year with some teachers. And then we had a question from one of our listeners that really got to the same question that we had asked you last year. So I was like, let's get let's get him back. Also, you have a course that I'm sure you'll talk about that addresses yes. this too. But basically, the yeah. question was like, hey, we have sixth graders who, you know, they've assessed them with the past test, the phonics assessment. They're seeing that they have some of those skills that they're the, the, the students are lacking in some of those phonics skills, but they feel like it's going to just be too babyish if they go back and do the same thing you would do with a kindergartner, first or second grader that doesn't have those skills. Sure. So that's what we wanted to talk to you about today is like, where do they start? Do start? <laughs> okay. If by some chance that you two throw me off course telling more stories about children who sleep or don't, and, and, I, and I forget the course that um, that that Merith and I have have created at Student Achievement Partners. Well, don't let that happen at any rate. But I'm sure you won't. Okay, we, we, I'll bring we you won't back. let you forget your life's work. We won't. <laughs> okay. Um, foundational skills has two parts, as as probably everybody listening knows. Um, word recognition. Well, you could say it's three parts because. Decoding, which is what you do with a word when you when it's not automatic, when you don't automatically recognize it, is you do decode it. So a student who comes across the word serious and doesn't recognize it right away, can't pronounce it right away, breaks it down, decodes it um, successfully or not. And that's decoding. And then once that decoding is successful X number of times, um, no one knows what X is in this case. The, the guy who first <laughs> did this work, a guy named Cher, S-H-A-R-E, who is now in Israel, I think, he said five or six times, and if the, if the student sees the word five or six times, it becomes automatic. It becomes part of, of their, um, I can't believe it, of their, their lexicon, um, their word, the, the words that they recognize automatically. The name for that term will come back to me. But in other words, the important point is, not the name or the jargon, but that five or six times he said back in 1995, but it becomes automatic. Well, we've since known, since known that that's not the case for every student. In fact, some, some students it's less and some students it's more, and some students it's considerably more, which doesn't get nearly the attention that, that it does. So that's font decoding and word recognition and then fluency. Um, if you don't have word recognition, you have no fluency. And, I, and I'm sure everybody listening to this gets that on, on, on a real level. Um, but you could have great word recognition. You could recognize words effortlessly and automatically um, and still not be a terribly fluent reader. So you might need fluency instruction. And then that makes that those three are foundational skills. So the question is, what is an older student who doesn't have foundational skills? Now, we're going to come back to this in the course of this talk through, through different avenues. 
But one is the very good question of this stuff is babyish. How do I get my kids? How do I get my kids to do it? Mm. You have to two things. You have to connect the work as much as possible to meaningful texts that the students are reading, preferably in their tier one instruction so that they know that they're part of the ball game. Um, that's easier to do with fluency than it is with word recognition or decoding. But in both cases, it's, it's, it's really essentially important. And so how do you do that? How do you teach phonics with tier one text? Um, the, the shortest answer is chapter seven of our book. Um, no better, do better. <laughs> that's true. Which really is. Which we love. We love that book. And chapter seven is the, the, the magic for older kids. Yes, yes. Uh, Explain. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's games. So let's say you see kids are struggling with the EIGH digraph um, or the EIGH pattern. So they get screwed up with neighborhood and way and so forth. Then you say, okay, um, EIGH makes an A. It's here in three words. So let's let that read that some of you have struggled with. Let's take a look at those three words. Um, okay. Then you put those words in some kind of game situation. You, you get a whole bunch of E-I-G-H words, book seven or eight, and you play some snappy, quick, fun games. You break the kids up into pairs um, and a, student A reads it out loud, student B listens, then you switch, then you compete. Who reads it faster, student A or student B? And then you say student A is going to make a mistake. They're going to read the seven words but one is going to be incorrect. Student B has to stand up and yell or raise his hand at the incorrect pronunciation and give the correct pronunciation. There's a, it, the games have to be snappy. They have to be as much fun as possible and they can be competitive and they need to be based into tier one instruction. Now I've gotten a lot of feedback from the course that, that we're going to talk about. And then also from people who correspond through our book that that can be that that can be helpful, mm-hmm. but it's it's still it's still tricky because you, the teacher has to decide. Okay, do I do this whole class? I have some kids who need it and some kids don't. Mm-hmm. Um, no. And how often do I do it? And right. this is an example of what America's most famous philo- uh, contemporary philosopher, um, the the late Yogi Berra, would say: <laughs> In theory, there's no difference between theory and practice. In practice, there is. Theoretically, this would work. If students repeat these words, they learn the pattern, they repeat them a number of times, that word will become automatic. That is the theory, and it is correct. The practice problem is, well, how often do I do it? And do I do it small group? Do I do it whole group? Um, And that's, that's the tough, that's what's tough. I think if these games... If you're in a situation where you have to do a whole group with tier one instruct with tier one, and you have to stop for like four or five minutes in the course of a class or five or even 10 minutes, um, if the game is enough fun, it will help. You could break up into groups and have one group do something else, fluency work or read the tier one text as a variety and pull out those kids who need it. That's another way it can be done. But it needs to be integrated as much as possible into tier one, tier one instruction. Mm-hmm. Questions David. or comments? And I'll, then I'll add or expand on that a little. <laughs> well, I'll just say in Baltimore, when we had you know, some of our teachers trying out exactly what you're talking about, 
we actually had students who were really excited because they they could even say like they were able to say they felt more confident in reading those tier one texts in their class from doing those activities right so like the teachers thought, oh, I don't know if this is going to go well. I, they still thought it might be too babyish or like they would feel like, you know, they're in sixth, seventh grade. They don't need that. But they actually said they felt more confident reading and it, it felt good to them. <laughs> so that's just. That, uh, that's good to hear. And, <laughs> and that's the kind of feedback we've gotten. Kids want, mm-hmm. I mean, kids have been doing some kind of instruction with reading since the first week of kindergarten or the first day of kindergarten. And unfortunately, because of because of programs like Fontes and Pinnell and balanced literacy, they've been grouped since kindergarten um, oh, in different letters. And yeah. in kindergarten, they 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 kids are as you know and and as we all know, kids aren't stupid. So they know once they know the alphabet and they see that it's December and they're on letter C or letter G, and other people are on letter S or letter T. Or, or whatever, that is a blow to your confidence. And that is a blow to your ego that goes on for five days a week for an entire school year over the course of a student's life. It's like tracking beginning in kindergarten. And then we talk about building kids up, building their confidence, building their sense of efficacy, social and emotional learning, while we've got them packaged into these little mini ability groups that they have every single day. And then we wonder why it hasn't helped everybody, why it hasn't gotten better. Um, I always remember something. I asked Tim Rosinski, who's one of the few people who've been taught, who've spoken out over the years about this. And I said, Tim, you've been talking for 35 years about how level <laughs> reading doesn't work. Um, and I have, I have enormous respect for Tim, even though he and I have disagreed about something, but he, he's been doing research <laughs> since, since, he was doing this kind of work when I was throwing passes at recess to Meredith um, in our school in our school in Harlem, um, you know. And and I, I always remember one kid got very upset and said, "You got to guard Mrs. Lieben. She's a, she's a lady, but she can catch." Um, so he said two. He said two things. One, it's kind of easier to teach people to read if the book that you're using they can kind of sort of read on their own. And if they really can't. And number two, there's a massive publishing industry behind this, which has which this is still the case, although it's taken a bit of a blow because of um, Student Achievement Partners report uh, on on Lucy on units of study and also because of Ed, um, Ed reports. So balanced literacy is is not as prevalent as it once was. Um, but at any rate, that that's that's responsible for all of that. So when kids get a chance to actually see they can do something like you just said, Melissa, and even though they know they were supposed to have done it a number of years ago, if not five or six, it makes them feel good, especially if the teacher has um, has has talked about that. But there's another part to this, and that is. Kids who've been struggling all along, as we've just discussed, don't feel good about themselves as readers and don't enjoy it. They need to understand that the reason they're struggling reflected improper instruction, in all likelihood, reflected improper instruction in kindergarten, first or second grade. 
the kind of instruction not based on the science of reading, which succeeded with some kids, but by no means not all kids. They need to understand that. And they need to understand that beginning reading, when that beginning reading and the ability to learn to do beginning reading, things like decoding, like an EIGH, is not at all connected to intelligence. It involves the parts of the brain that have to do with auditory processing and visual processing and connecting those. And it is nothing to do with intelligence. You can't just get up there and start telling them they're not stupid. They, of course, because they're not stupid, they know you're supposed to tell them that. The teacher's not supposed to stand up in front of them. You can't read. You're stupid. Um, they, they understand that. They know that's that. How they, yeah, and that's how they feel. Yeah. It, totally. Totally. Yeah. So we have written with, with, we have made a book with the School of Cartoon Studies, which happens to be, believe it or not, like 20 minutes from our house in Vermont. And it's the only school of cartoon studies in the United States. And it's called How We Read a Guide to Reading. And it explains how the brain begins to learn to read and how, and how without proper instruction, it doesn't work and how that failure in the early grades is not connected to intelligence, but it, you, you carry it as a weight throughout your years in school and it hampers your fluency, it hampers your confidence, it hampers your vocabulary growth, it hampers your knowledge that you can acquire through reading. Mm -hmm. And it does not reflect intelligence, as I said, and it begins, it begins then, but it can be fixed. And that's a graphic guide to reading. Um, and I can give you one offline how to get uh, electronic copies of that are free. I'm not sure if they're on our website yet. Okay. And schools or districts that want to or, or order the hard copy, which I recommend, it's very inexpensive. Um, the, we can give you that information too. So cool. the other part... The other part, geez, my answers are freaking long. Um, the, <laughs> I actually, I was thinking, this is so we lovely to have to you on, David. Day. <laughs> yeah, you're, it's just, it, this is like the David Levin podcast. And then you're like, and tell me what you think. So we just, <laughs> we just listen and you keep talking. I, I do have some things to say, but you keep going and then I'll jump in. Uh, I was just going to put it like a, a coda on what I said. The coda being the other thing to help the kids, one is the snappy games that are successful in the way Melissa said, but the other is the kids having that knowledge in their head that I basically, it's not my fault and it doesn't mean I'm stupid. And therefore I'm even more likely to invest in EIGH. And then maybe they can do something that they'd be willing to take home workbooks that practice phonics skills at home on their own. You don't need a certified teacher to stand over a kid all the time for them to practice phonics or word recognition. If you can get kids to buy in so that they will do the kind of practice that a workbook has, where you, if you get it right, it, you automatically know you're right. And if you get it wrong, you automatically know you're confused. There are games that can do that too, but really a workbook is in a lot of ways the shortest distance between two points. And we now have research that if you use a workbook, you won't go to hell. So if if you can get the kids to buy into something like that, that's an enormous help. The same thing with fluency and our fluency packet, which is on the Student Achievement Pocket Partners website, which I'm pretty sure, Melissa, you're familiar with. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, so sure. 
if you get the kids to buy in because of this confidence factor and because of their understanding what what is behind their problems, that's even more important than that's more important than anything. And I haven't seen I haven't seen anything comparable to our guide to reading that explains to kids as part of a lesson and part of a book what's going on with their reading life. I love how you're saying it like it's not the kid's fault. And that, that's paramount, especially with the older kids. Um, I, I think that's really important to communicate to them, David. So thank you for naming that. Um, it seems to me like what you're saying is, you know, a consistency over time where we're building those skills. And so if I'm a teacher listening, cause we know we have a big teacher audience. If I'm a teacher listening, I'm hearing you say, okay, the tier one texts are really important. And I'm going to embed everything that I do within those tier one texts to make everything really, um, flow for the kids to make it, um, very accessible. So that when I'm practicing my, my phonics or my decoding, I'm doing it within context of what then I'll be reading. Um, I'm also hearing you say that like a little bit every day is really important. And four to five minutes of those games that you mentioned over the course of, you know, six months, eight months of school year could have a big impact. And then also some fluency practice in there as well is very important. Is, is that like a really good summary of what you just said? Yeah, I might have, I might have been a little too optimistic with four to five minutes. Of course, it depends. Listen, if every you, teacher you're... in here knows it's going to take 10 minutes, David. We're going to know okay, what you're doing Time Time is not our friend in education, unfortunately. No, it's very true. Um, I was thinking 10 minutes. By the time you walk down the hall and go to the bathroom, 10 minutes is done, right? So. Yes, yes. <laughs> 10 minutes, 10, 15 it's minutes. Good. It's, good. it's good to be working with people who actually have been in the classroom with real students. <laughs> yes. Lots of them. <laughs> Melissa, um, do you have any questions? Well, first, I just want to say I've already downloaded the How We Read uh, Graphic Guide to Literacy, and it's amazing. <laughs> I'm just I'm just scrolling through, but I can't wait to actually read it at all. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm probably not going to be able to keep both questions in my working memory. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to I'm going to start with yeah I'm going to start with decodables. <laughs> Um, you know, I don't feel bad about that because I always remember in, in the last part of Obama's second term, he was at a, you know talking to the report, and it was at, it was a you know a press conference or something. He said, "Well, you know, you guys asked me these three part questions when I was younger. I could <laughs> I could remember all of them. I, mean, I can't do that anymore. So you're going to have to repeat at, le at at least question three. So I don't feel that bad. And he's you know he's like thirty years younger than I am. Um, <laughs> okay, let's start with this. There's there's no research that you that you need to that you have to have only decodables at any age. That's number one. Number two, there's a really good paper. And, and again, you can get this and, and put it on your site, you know, just ping me that it's actually a review of some research. There's two papers that I'm going to say. One is written by Marilyn Adams. So it's really well-written and really clear and to you users who don't know the name because she's kind of hasn't been around much lately. Marilyn Adams is one of the only, one of the two people who wrote the foundational skills standards. Um, and also a book called beginning to read in the 1990s, which is more, more cited than any book in, in, in the history of foundational reading. Mm. So what, what the point that she makes is that the the, the role that decodables play is to show kids and convince kids that when they come to a word that they don't recognize automatically, 
to decode that word moving from left to right. And that's the first thing they need to do to get them into not just first the inclination to decode the word when they first come to it. That's very important. The role of decodables is to get them to have the inclination before anything else to decode that word, spelling, sound patterns, linguistically, phonetically, et cetera. And secondly, as a result of the inclination for that to be a habit. Now, of course, the three-part cueing system blew this whole thing out of the water <laughs> because it put everything on equal footing. I mean, that's giving it the benefit of the doubt. I really think that they said a lot of a lot of instruction said use the picture, use the context. But clearly they said for, for decades, um, they're all equally important. And that did, as you both know, and as I think a lot of your listeners know, that's, that did an enormous amount of damage. So the role of decodabilities is to give kids the inclination and the inclination over a period of time becomes the habit. That's number one. Number two, the sooner the better. Decodables have a bigger bang for the buck in kindergarten and first grade by far than they do in second grade and a bigger bang for the buck in the beginning of first grade than they do in even the middle or the end. So that's number two. Number three, there's a re- the only synthesis of reviews on decodability is at least 10 years old. I, I, I can send you it. It's by, it's by two people called Cheatham and Allures. I'm not sure if I'll pronounce them Cheater the right name. Cheatham and Allures, <laughs> it, kind, it kind of sounds like Allure means, I think, going away or something in French. So it sounds, Cheatham and Allures sounds like either a corporate law firm or a group of bank robbers. <laughs> but at any rate. Um, I don't even want to know what I was thinking when you said it. I was thinking <laughs> well, like a, a new Tiger King or something. <laughs> 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 But it's it's really it's really good work. Um, and what 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 that work shows is it's not decodables, it's decodability. The kindergarten, first grade, this they could need me a, a good number of words that have phonics patterns that students have been taught or are in the process of learning so that they can be, they can develop the in, inclination to decode and the habit of decoding first. However, if we only, the only way that every word could be a decodable is if the only text that students read in kindergarten or first grade are decodables. That's not a great idea. And, and research- Why not? <laughs> yeah, tell us <laughs> For two reasons. First of all, you know, other, other than other than geodes, as you guys know well, and, and geodes is the decodables written for wit and wisdom, which are works of art and poetry, which should be admired for future generations. Um, but other than those two, decodables, a lot of them are not great in terms of um, garnering interest, etc. Yeah. But that's not even the biggest problem. The other point is worked by a woman named Donna Scanlon, um, S-C-A-N-L-O-N, and that's something else I can send you. It doesn't get the attention it deserves. And her work has actually showed that when kids have a chance, when text provides students an opportunity to decode first and foremost always, but also to check their work in context. If they're not sure of the word, um, then 
it really is a good idea to use the context and then use learn how to use the context as a secondary or backup. I can't say that enough. And then go back to the word and look at it again. So in other words, the ideal way to do this is first try to decode. If it doesn't work, use the context. Then go back to the word and say, okay, I now know this word means bridge. I figured it out. What's making, what's making these sounds? I know B-R, that, and so that's bruh. I-D-G-E must be itch, and it's bridge. So you fail to decode, you go to the context, you determine the word from the context, you go back to the word, and you do essentially what Linnea Erie calls orthographic mapping. Move from left to right. I know what this word is now. And I know, let's see, how did it make these sounds? That's the way to do it. And I wanted to be so sure that I was right about this, that in a personal convert, in a personal series of emails with Marilyn Adams, she said, that is exactly what you do. So you need books that provide multiple opportunities like that. I'm going to stop for questions and comments before we go on to older students, because as with everything else, it's 10 times as tricky when we move into the older grades. But first, questions or comments about that. I'm wondering about why, like, what, how many, like, what is the research behind it that, that led that, that led to that conclusion? Is there, are there bodies of research that, or is it just yes, like, well, the first conclusion about inclination and habit or the second conclusion about use of context as a secondary source can be actually powerful. Yeah, that's honest. That's Donna Scanlon's papers, and it's actually a body. Okay. It's actually a body of work. There's like four or five, including one with older students, and I, I can send them to you. Of course, okay. anytime I say I can send something to someone, that means I have to find the freaking thing, and I'm not <laughs> good at that. Um, we can look at. We can look it up too. I just didn't know if it was like one report or multiple, and I think that that's. Oh important. no, Scanlon's is model good scan- habits of asking that. Yeah, no, that's a, that's that's a good question. And Scanlon's work is a whole body. It's it's been, I think it's you know, it's certainly her major work over her life, over her career. Um, awesome. Okay, I I wrote her name down, so we can look it up too, David. Okay, good. Because like one of my one of my favorite people in my work in education, Silas Kolkani, um, once said that David, your mind is like a book without a table of contents. Um, <laughs> that's a really good analogy. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Melissa, I love David Lieben. He is just, he shares so much information. He's the best. He shares so much information. And he shared so much information today that we want everyone who's listening to be able to digest all of this and put it into some manageable chunks. So we took this and made it a two parter. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I stopped. I stopped that. listing after a while, Melissa. I, I was like, I started making a list, and then I just stopped. I was like, "There's like <laughs> ten things here already. I'm not going to keep up with David." <laughs> yeah, and we know it's. I mean, it's a tough time of year, and here particularly, really tough time of year. So Lori and I really thought it a little shorter. <laughs> yes, and if anybody wants any content in between, we have that newsletter that we've mentioned, and you can grab some content there. We'll we'll totally fill your plate with 
some complex text and volume of reading and all kinds of good stuff that we've talked about with James, you know, two weeks or last week and David Lieben this week. And then again, David Lieben next week. So we'll, we'll get you with lots of content yep. if you want it. <laughs> we'll see you all again. Sounds good. Thank you so much for listening, Literacy Lovers. Be sure to visit our website to subscribe to our newsletter and podcast. It's literacypodcast.com. Yep. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Most of them are at Literacy Podcast. Yes. And please, please, please reach out to us. Melissa, what's our email address? Melissa and Lori at literacypodcast.com is our email address. We're so glad you're here to learn with us. Thank you, everybody.